0: RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. Jacqueline Roweth is an adjunct professor at Lincoln University. She has a PhD in soil science. She's a member of the Science Advisory Council of the World Farmers Organization. She's on the board of directors of a number of large agricultural companies and uh, also uh, is a well a retired academic is probably the best way to describe her. And she says she's in search of facts. I love facts, Paul. Thank you, Jack. and welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for coming on. You say, and I've read a recent op-ed that you've done that was published in Stuff, but I know that you say, and we, and you're kind of here to talk about this as the big picture, sort of um, overarching theme of of our chat: the increasing pressures placed on farmers by government and activists. W- Who are these people? Okay, government and activists, but who are these people? Why are they putting pressures on farmers? And what sort of position are farmers being put in? Let's start there.
1: Who are these people? They're well-intentioned people. Some of them have the power to set policy, possibly following advice. Some of them believe and therefore make waves. And in terms of the activist, it is the role of an activist to bring something to the fore that they think is being overlooked or something that's not happening fairly for humanity or any of those sorts of things. It is their role. But when we're looking at activists, we might need to consider that if their role is creating um, a change, alarm, concern, whatever, to create change, there might be some exaggerations going on. And my role is always to support science, to support good people and try, and this is a self-imposed role, try and sort out fact from fiction. And and this is 40 years of teaching, get people to think about the unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences can be dire if you don't understand the system in which you're working. So for a farmer, who might or might not have grown up in farming, who might or might not have gone to university to try and consider to bringing in all the aspects of animal plant science, uh, markets, consumer trends, uh, environment, all of those things, and economics, financial viability, bring them into one place, that person is doing it in the knowledge of their whole soil and their way of producing something. And when somebody comes in and says, by the way, you can't do X anymore, they don't necessarily understand the whole flow on of effects, which ends up in mm, a catastrophic budget hole, which means that you can't do the environmental planning, the planting, the fencing, whatever, that you had planned to make things better. So it's the unintended consequences of well-intended Changes that really bother me. And I try to get people to think about what might be the unintended consequences because they might be worse than the problem that the well intentioned person thinks they're trying to fix.
0: I don't have much knowledge of the rural sector, it's fair to say, though we did used to go and stay with relatives of ours on a farm in Caddy Caddy when I was, you know, preteen. And we used to love it. And it seemed like quite a cruisy existence, it was out in the country and and everyone was fairly laid back. I take it that world doesn't exist anymore.
1: Pretty difficult to find uh, unless you are really trying to live off-grid in a subsistence fashion. In New Zealand, that would be. It's pretty easy to find. Well, it's not laid back because you're desperately struggling for food on um, developing countries. But here, if you are trying to create high um quality food, then it is actually, whether it's vegetable or animal, then there is a lot to deal with. And it's not a very relaxed way of living anymore. It's a business. It's a business where you're managing the environment as well as the animals or plants or whatever. And that business aspect. And I know there is a philosophy that farmers shouldn't be business people, but where would we be then if that wasn't okay? Ca- if that was the case, so the whole economy of New Zealand actually depends upon the primary sector being very efficient, and that's been driven by markets, uh, market focus, and um, productivity gains. We've led productivity gains through the years. It's a really good story, but the trouble is. It's not a well-understood one, and the interconnectedness of the New Zealand dairy, beef, um, cropping, for instance, is not well understood. And, mm, this, well, as we're saying, the pressure's on the farmer at the moment, and that was before the um, price crashes and the schedule problems. So I just keep trying to say New Zealand needs the primary sector being productive and efficient. And it is the most productive and efficient in the world. We have the data in order to be able to uh, allow some people to go to their beaches and have a relaxed weekend. I can say that this weekend, um, there are calves to be fed, and there is um, um, because of a funeral, we will be on duty for milking. And yeah, it's lovely, but it's not relaxed.
0: Not anymore. Okay. Yeah. Like I thought, those days have gone. So how come? people who should understand this, and, and those are the people in the, in the power elite of our country who must know that our economic viability and success substantially depends on the sector doing okay, why, why is there such a negativity or, or what seems like a negativity towards it? Hard to understand.
1: A, yeah, it it is. Um, I'm an immigrant. I've been here since the beginning of 1976, and I went to Massey University. And I'm still in touch with a lot of school friends, uh, varsity friends, some of whom are farming, some of in banks, some of in industry, you know, right across the sector. And it, it is well, a, a lot of people have done other things. So the liberalisation of the of the curriculum. It has created major changes since the late 80s. So the big 90s was the real bums on seats type model. And um, I think that many people don't realise what happened when the subsidies were taken off in the 1980s and how that changed the mentality of the New Zealand farmer. I think at this point, Rob, uh, Paul, we should remember that most countries in the world subsidise their farmers to effectively caretake the environment. Still, Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes. And it went up during COVID. So gross farm receipts, maybe uh, 20, 22 percent of the farm income on average in the EU, for instance. And I've just come back from a a trip to the pasture summit in Ireland and the buoyancy of the Irish because their risk is taken away by the EU subsidies. This was Southern Ireland and therefore they're still part of the EU. And the tax breaks they're getting to bring younger people into the industry. And so they feel they've got a vibrant industry, despite the fact that they've got water pressures and greenhouse gas pressures and labour pressures, just like us. They feel that their government wants them to survive, want values wow. the work they do producing food. So there they are saying, "Yep, yeah, this is their has. Never been a better time to be in dairy in Ireland because we have grass-fed cows producing high-quality meat and milk, which the world wants. Now, their grass-fed cows are about 50% grass. New Zealand's, let's try 90%. (laughs) Well, we
0: should should, be. That's a great, that's an incredible sales point of difference, isn't it? Yeah, but
1: they've got their government supporting them.
0: So because some people would say, you know, the pure business, the purist would say if it can't stand on its own, you know, the market takes care of it. So yep. actually it turns out that is it a psychological benefit or it's a real monetary benefit? It's, it's probably oh, it's both. both. Yeah. I mean, should we be doing that here?
1: I have met in my 40 years of teaching and talking with farmers and being around the traps, only one farmer who said, that um, it was a pity the subsidies went away. Because when the subsidies went, and this harks back to some of the actual activists and the Greens, um, it was mid-'80s and the average sheep farmer was, so the average sheep, was getting 40% of their income through subsidies. And the rest of the world was saying that's not fair Rather as we do about the rest of the world being subsidized. Yeah. And the government took away the subsidies virtually overnight. And it was at that stage that the sheep farmers on the Canterbury Plains said, Well, we can't survive. And, it, and because irrigation at that stage and because people were picking up on the importance of dairy and it was being traded more globally, that was where the dairy boom came and came in on the Canterbury Plains. And that actually has created a lot of concern in people in the activist mind about it doesn't look like it does anymore. You know, did. And this is you know, another, this is another psychological point. We tend to think that the environment should be what we remember from when we grew up. Yeah. So if I talk about the Canterbury Plains to different age groups, uh, there will be, or Mackenzie Basin's a classic, they um the older. My generation will think, "Oh, waving golden tussock, and yeah. <laughs> then the eighties um, people will think lupins are great. Well, they were introduced by David Scott, a famous grassland scientist's mother, by throwing them lupin seeds out of her window because she thought they looked good. and then: That's very scientific,
0: think- <laughs> highly scientific.
1: <laughs> the younger generation think the irrigation circles are natural, and they think they're great. So it's this concept of what it should look like. But if we go back to the concept of the Canterbury Plains, back in the, I think it was about the 1860s, uh, a reverend was sent to the Canterbury Plains from Wellington to talk to have a look at settlement on the Canterbury Plains. And he stood on Banks Peninsula, and this is in the archives, And he said, what I can see is waving golden grassland interspersed with twinkly braids of water. And my problem here, he said, is that there is no wood. So development is going to be a problem because there's no wood for building or fires or um, whatever else you do with it. And that's where the Macrocarpas came from. So that was um, 1840s, 1860s. In the 1990s, a Fulbright scholar so from America was working in the geography department at Canterbury University, and he looked at the Canterbury Plains and he said, those Macrocarpas are going to be a problem. People think they're iconic. People think they are part of the landscape and yeah. they are at maturity and they need to come down. And that's the, you know, we've had the odd immolation of um, the trees, the macrocarpas, you know, bursting into flames practically in the hot wind. But when the dairy dairy came in, they took out the macrocarpas that were going over and dropping limbs and breaking things and going up in flames, and people said, oh, it's not natural. Well, actually, depends on your memory.
0: Yeah, short memories, eh? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, we weren't there during the 1840s, 50s, 60s, but nevertheless. So we need to think about what is logical now? And the Canterbury Plains, well, the Canterbury Plains and then the dairy development in Southland, that, um, that just reinvigorated the region so that the schools opened up again, that the little towns, which when I was teaching there in the 90s were verging on, it at Lincoln in the 90s, were verging on giving up, are suddenly actually bigger towns and vibrant because there are people there and the people have come in with dairy, and then you get the support people, and then you get the chemists and the doctors, and it all. Well,
0: that's all good. Drives. That's all good, isn't it?
1: Well, yes, but the environmentalists don't like it because cows shouldn't be on the dairy on the Canterbury Plains. And I think. But, to, but who said? Exactly right. Then they start talking about nitrate and drinking water, but we've got data from the 1940s that showed nitrate there was quite high. And we have to remember about organic matter and turnover and natural nitrogen coming from dead plant material and say, what actually is the problem here?
0: So here's a here's a real basic question. I could be missing something here. I, I'm still not sure. I don't think I've ever had an answer. Is there actually anything in this... Well, the negativity that uh, activists point to, the consequences of farming and the impact it's it's having, it sounds to someone like me kind of alarmist. Is it?
1: But the way it's phrased is absolutely, alarmist. but but
0: is there anything in it? Yeah, I mean, is there? Do they have a point, or is this? It's sort of like the climate. You know, the more alarming you make it sound, the worse yeah. it, it feels that it is.
1: Right, and so. We should always, as scientists, say that science changes. We, we get more facts. We get more evidence. We get more data. We get new techniques which allow us to get more facts, evidence, and data. We understand the whole complexities better. We understand the interactions better because we're constantly doing the research. Now, what the alarmists are saying is that we mustn't have nitrate in drinking water because it causes a whole lot of things, and there is no credible, significant Evidence that says it does so so where does the back,
0: argument come from then in that
1: case uh the old cherry picking piece of information, and then um a building of a stack of cards that if x is true, sorry, but it isn't, no, no, if it was true, there would be eight hundred thousand oh, oh people with um colorectal cancer in New Zealand, yeah, but it's not true, so go back to yes, but if it was, and so people like me keep saying there is no evidence credible, you know, we keep trying to explain and to reassure people that the there are, we can't find any significant evidence. And what we can find in terms of nitrate, for instance, is that, oh, Paul, I'll ask you a personal question. Did you eat any green vegetable last night? Or did you have lettuce in your sandwich at lunch?
0: Well, do you want me to answer that? I, well,
1: the thing about kale... I think I did that, have
0: some green vegetables last right. night.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kale, that superfood, might be 800 parts per million, 900, 1,000 parts per million. Beetroot is over 800, and that's all um, put forward as being important for heart health because, in fact, nitrate is taken out of the sali- um, out of the food and recycled in the body, and it has heart health benefits. So why would... Uh, a little bit in drinking water actually be a problem so we have to go back to what mechanism could nitrate in drinking water reach the colorectal area to cause cancer it can't it's taken up before it gets there because it's recycled because it's valuable
0: yeah um, it, it seems that there's an amplification effect here that that it'll be reported that someone says something And that person, no one knows if they have credibility or not, because no one knows who these people are, unless you sort of drill in and find out and read the big list like I did with you. And I know that all that's credible, but then it's reported again as if it's something and then it sort of gets its own energy and suddenly it becomes, then it becomes a thing.
1: Yeah. Is and, that how
0: it works?
1: Yeah, there's research on that as well. And the second time you hear something, you're more likely you are to believe it's true, and the third time, well, it must be. And it, the snark syndrome, Lewis Carroll, you know the um, hunting of the snark? Yeah, hunting of in, the snark, yeah. yeah uh, the bellman says, if I tell you three times it's true, and there is... Um, a reality to that according to psychological research so that's what they go for and there's quite a lot of advertising that sort of says dairy farmers have robbed you of every new zealanders right and you just have to think how did they do that and it turns out to be the right to fresh water
0: that's extreme (laughs) Um Well,
1: greenpeace go and have a look yep it's there
0: I've seen um, posts on social media, people saying that we need to get rid of dairying, we need to get rid of it, like it needs to be gone, you know, as if it's well, evil.
1: <laughs> yeah, 22 billion and then the circulation effect, I think yeah. that would be a problem. It's less than 7% of the area of New Zealand and it's um, over half of just from the dairying component. But remember, a lot of beef, you know, Meat, beef yep. starts off on a dairy farm. So that's either um, calves going to be raised as dairy beef or the cull cows that then they're quite sought after in America for um, beef burgers. So there's, the value of the dairy industry to New Zealand is very much greater than people can understand simply from the milk part. And the milk part's practically half of the export economy alone.
0: Yeah.
1: And they it's forget. It- that yeah. dollar, that dollar goes round. So a dollar from the export economy, there are only two sources of new money. One is what you sell offshore, and the other one is government borrowings. Well, we don't need any more of the latter. So no. let's go back to the um, the export dollar. That goes round several times. So the dairy farmer spends it at the um the local supplier and the local supplier brings in more supplies and gives some to his wages and then he can go to the supermarket. It's all of that sort of thing.
0: I believe that um, d- really 10% of the whole process is what the farmer ends up with. In the oh,
1: population. that was and, an and that's
0: And that's shrinking.
1: It's not good at the moment. There's been quite a lot of coverage of the milk price crash. Yeah. and And so farmers – Don't get very much uh, by the at the end of it. And this year they'll be giving out from savings because the cost of production, partly because of the expense of things that they need to buy, and um, inflation offshore is greater than here in terms of variously. I've seen inflation figures for dairy being twelve and seventeen percent because our equipment comes in from overseas. Yeah. And. Zealand's got this problem about being so far from anywhere, so, and so the amount of money they actually get at this year and partly because of salary increases and in, partly because of interest rates, so we need to cut oh you what's to- happening with interest
0: rates, interest rates because oh, ha. The-
1: But yes, they end up with very little of it, and this year it won't cover the cost of production. So interest, fascinating, and one can get really interested in all of the things that people think they're doing to stop a problem, and then think, well, have they thought this through? Because the OCR is going up to stop inflation. Inflation is higher in agriculture than it is in the normal consumer price index, and and why is that? uh Because of the stuff we bring in from overseas, okay, which so includes that's driving gear, that.
0: okay, gotcha. gear,
1: fuel, fertilizer. Luckily, that's coming down a bit, but those sorts of things all affected by Ukraine, Russia. Yeah, you know, horrible stuff going on. They could have all. been sorted uh, out
0: ages ago. Just saying, but okay, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But the other big thing, the interest. So every time the OCR goes up, the banks ramp up their things to try and reduce interest but the banks apparently they only about a third of householders actually have a mortgage most of the mortgage is with businesses and so a a business mortgage is at a higher interest rate than a house mortgage The house mortgage, the payments are calculated on the salaries of the people who are taking the mortgage out to buy the house. And they say, yes, I will always be employed by the government or the regional council or whatever. And the bank says, good, that's not much of a risk. Um, Mm. Here's your mortgage. Whereas they say to the farmer, Uh what do you really think your cash flow is going to be? Yeah, well, that's a bit of a risk for us. So your mortgage will be, and it turns out to be, higher than a house mortgage. So theories, you know, lovely parents say That's
0: if you can get it.
1: Ah, well, if you can get it, because then the, the traditional way of coming into farming is at risk now, because the fluctuations in the incomes through the meat schedules or the dairy milk price, um, it's un, insecure at the moment. It's just insecure. So will you get your mortgage? Hmm. And then it ramps up and you think, well, what the hell do I do because I can't pay off much? Actually, dairy has paid off quite a bit. At the moment, the interest rate, uh, the um, debts are going up um, a bit in sheep and beef and certainly in horticulture. And poor old horticulture has been lost with so many um. You know, weather disasters. And of course, yep. they use quite a lot of fertilizer and agri chemicals to create that uh, high quality um, product, produce, the fruit and vegetables. So they have been pretty hit this year and, well, and last year. So their mortgages are, are ramping up a bit, whereas dairy's flattened off, but having come down quite a lot.
0: So this is um, putting people who work the land, let's put them in that category, in an even tougher situation. I'm yeah. wondering, is there – you're talking about all those inputs from outside of the, the country, yeah. you know, and we don't have control on the, the inflation there, the, the pricing, etc. Yeah. global conditions. Is there any way – because, you know, we've talked to a few people on this program about other concepts of farming, you know, not so industrial, let's say, or <laughs> chemically – chemically based or 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 synthetically chemically based are there ways that we can do things differently that sort of give us a buffer or mitigate these outside influences uh, to an extent and and make things a little more secure a little more stable here at home
1: no that would make them less stable really so I will now explain because we export nutrients We export nutrients in the form of uh, delicious apples, but more particularly delicious meat and milk. We export the essential amino acids, which are basically nitrogen based, and there's a lot of phosphorus, sulfur, calcium. We export nutrients. So there are theories that the soil's got a lot and therefore we don't need to add any. Uh, Well, the theories fundamentally are uh right in that they've they hold a lot, but that is the fabric of the soil, so if you don't replace anything your uh what you're trying to grow the plants for instance, are going to get it's going to be more and more difficult for them to get the nutrients out, and the organic matter which holds a lot of them will be depleted. And so you're winding down the system. And and scientists have done this work. We can see what happens if you stop um, adding nitrogen, for instance. We can see what happens if you stop adding superphosphate. And quite a lot depends on how you start, uh, what level, what point you're starting at. If you have a high concentration of phosphorus already, it might take a few years to see the effect. But then it takes a while to build it up again. And we did the long-term superphosphate trials in New Zealand when the subsidies came off because Hill Country Farmers were saying, shock horror, how do we save money? And we were in advance saying, well, you've got two to three years uh, before you start seeing the effects, but then you will have a major decline. And that decline goes on for a long time. But the crash, and then you're potentially out of business. So how then, if you're not producing stuff to sell, how do you cover your bank mortgage? And what the banks say is that for most people who have a a bonzer idea about changing their production system, they will be assisted off the farm within a decade, unless they start putting the nutrients back on again, because the level of production they can achieve without nutrients is so very low. Now, you can bring in Maybe if you don't want to use the synthetics, you can bring in fertilizer from chicken manure or goats or some animal that's housed. But most of our animals are are outside in New Zealand, so we don't actually have a lot of stocks that can be used. And they tend to be quite expensive. And are they actually, are you going to get the premium to offset that? Yeah. And that can be the problem. The other component about the agri-chemicals, uh, the pesticides, for instance, is that um, because there are a few organic farms or regenerative farms in New Zealand, they tend to be surrounded by conventional ones, and that gives a certain amount of buffer zone for weeds and pests and diseases. Not complete, but a certain buffer zone. And right. all generic And uh, generally... We would say that production um, from an organic system across crops and and different cultivars and all of those sorts of things, probably 40% lower than if you used a conventional system. No evidence that there are differences in quality of the product according to whether you're organic or regenerative or conventional. We've done that work. The difference is when you picked it and how you looked after it um, once you picked it for instance you know did you leave it in a hot car or did you freeze it by myself
0: yeah
1: Uh, so then we say what are we actually trying to do and for most farmers what they're trying to do apart from create enough of a pleasant life for their family is produce a good quality product that they're proud of and Homish Ma, one of my lovely Lincoln students who's just become the um, special agricultural envoy for New Zealand. It, 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 he says the pride he feels as he bags up the grain, as they drive with their great um, combine harvesters across the paddock, knowing they're going to be feeding people, they want to have the pride in everything they do. And we feel the same about the farm here, the one in which I'm involved, where we're trying to feed people efficiently. and efficiently.
0: Oh, So, so it's, it's, okay, it's a business, but you're actually consciously thinking that, that you oh, yes. are feeling good because you know you are feeding people. Yeah,
1: and looking after the environment because when there is a sufficient income stream, um, the, the farm in which I'm involved, 25,000 native plants, saved a peat lake with weirs and those sorts of things. Everything's fenced, of course it is. Um, and we're a a high producing so um, it can
0: be done it can be done
1: but you need to be as they say uh, you need to be in the black to be able to be green and this year when the budgets are being redone because of the crash in the milk price and the schedules are low people are saying well what can i actually save i'm I want to be able to look after my family. Well, they'll defer repairs and maintenance on things, and there may well be. It would have been nice to have planted up, um, you know, another roadside or something because we've done all the streams. Um, But that won't happen because we can't afford not only just to do the planting but also then to be doing the tree release and all of that sort of thing. We've got enough maintenance and um, without creating a new area of activity you know Paul. when you look at the uh, um, across the country an awful lot of native bush is on beef and sheep farms the QE2 trusts and there's a lot of um, native that isn't in the QE2 trust it's there because people care about it and um, and they like to hear the kiwis I and mean, farmers Farmers wouldn't be farming if they didn't like the land, but it also has to be economically viable.
0: Yeah. That uh, economic viability question then, if if that's threatened mm-hmm. and, and, you know, farmers literally are faced with having to, I mean, walk off the land sounds dramatic, but I guess in the end that's what happens um, at some point. Yeah. Um, then I, I take it that puts New Zealand and our situation in a position where, I mean, I mean that that land's not going to go to waste, is it? Someone will come in. What is it? The corporate farming sector comes in, swallows up that land. Yeah, that would change the culture of farming, wouldn't it?
1: They... Uh, remember, we have got some groups already that might be considered corporate in by, yeah. with some definitions, but they actually operate as individual farms. Okay,
0: so, so that's not there's not necessarily a, a, a threat.
1: It's not necessarily, no. There are um, groups that are bringing in families, bringing in in exactly the same way that they used to, working through the yeah. um, the contract milker or herd manager route so that they build up some assets. Absolutely there are. So it's not a complete threat in the way we think of, what well, we don't have big agriculture. We don't actually have industrial farming. Well, I'm thinking
0: of it. BlackRock, companies like that that got oh, huge scale money can come and go, hey, there's a whole lot of bargain farms here in New Zealand. Let's buy them could. all up.
1: Yeah, and we'll put in um, solar panels and those sorts of things. That would actually, that would fundamentally change. And yeah. uh, mostly what the banks are saying, though we could talk about record profits and think at whose yeah, expense. Yeah, well,
0: they, they is, are.
1: <laughs> is try and, and the banks are saying, how can we help you through this? So they, I suspect they'll be putting them on interest only.
0: Yeah, but that only uh, goes so long too, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, but... And you know, the question is at what point in a cycle are we? And really nobody knows anymore because cycles used to mean something and we're not sure yeah. now because we get we can't really tell what's happening in China or any of the interesting countries. We can't but what we know is what the Nestle's the knowns, McDonalds say they want, which is low impact meat and milk. And New Zealand has the data that says it's the lowest impact, fewest greenhouse gases, lowest nitrogen loss in the world. So they're coming to us and saying, we want your product. So there is hope on that. And what I would like the government to do is say, we need you. You are valued. We understand the stresses. We also understand that you're all doing everything you can on your properties. And so the regu- we are reviewing the regulations, we talked about this at the beginning, to make sure that they are unified and that they work with farm environmental plans. In fact, if we just said the thing you need is your farm environmental plan and it will be assessed on an annual basis, farmers will breathe a sigh of relief because they wouldn't be being audited or asked for the same data, but in a slightly different format, by their milk company, their meat company, their and um, mm. regional council, the uh, um, MPI does some. It did just the number of audits that one is Tsunami. having. Tsunami. And then the um, health and welfare people come because they want to look at the agrochemical storage. And you just think, and again, go um, away. <laughs> again. Yeah. Goodness. So
0: okay. yeah. it's,
1: could we get it together and say these are the components and this is what will be checked? Mm, you know, might be in depth this year, but we're having to fill in a lot of papers. Farmers are saying they spend a third of their time doing paperwork instead of actually working on in in or on on would be better their business. And because we are so short-staffed, <laughs> I'm looking at some of them and thinking they're zombies. Why, yeah, well, they why are they actually any sleep. at this meeting?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they just not enough sleep. No, the paperwork gets done at night when they should be having a relaxed dinner and talking to their family.
0: Yeah. Okay, and then then there's the, you know paying for emissions and I'm and getting back to what you said about um um EU. Yeah. D- should we should we start to consider you know some sort of supplementation subsidies again to keep because you can't let this thing fall over.
1: No. Okay. So I wouldn't be doing it like a subsidy. I would be saying that for the uh, greenhouse gas emissions, for instance, the whole Haywalker Econo process, we undertook to get a 10% reduction by 2030, and we are on track for doing that. That's so the that's primary doable sec-
0: in your mind. We,
1: we are doing it. Yeah, we okay. are on track. Now, some of that has been through forestry, which is just nonsense in my view, because you can't eat trees. And no. it's only a temporary, but nevertheless, it has been done. And when you look at the Fonterra records, you can see the Fonterra spread of emissions per kilo of milk solids. That actually, there are some farmers that actually may be uh, having a discussion about would you be better off um, milking sheep or goats or um, avocados. A lot of, see, up in Northland, a lot of dairy has gone to avocados, pine trees, and other urbanisation is another one. So we are on track to get to the 10% and we're doing it completely naturally. We're doing it through efficiency and we're very good at that and we've been doing it since the 1980s, getting more and more efficient and giving the productivity gains to the country. We lead productivity gains, so in the agricultural sector. But in the last year, productivity went backwards and that's the effect of regulation. And that's just a bit dismal. That was um well that's an own
0: that's an own goal, isn't it? That's yep. an own goal. 21
1: 2122 was the year of the productivity backwards. And so the effects of regulation are not helping because you see, they're not it's assisting being innovative. They're just they're putting more blocks in what is being done. And if there was a problem, see this is the issue. Regulations are fine if there's an actual problem but for many farmers they're on the journey of improvement already and this constant regulation uh, and auditing is making them think that they're the worst child in the class hmm. and once you're the worst child in the class just nobody wants to be your friend
0: no okay so, so see it's what you're just saying awful.
1: well the children don't want to come in so the great careers in agriculture then, and children are thinking they're going to be something else instead. So who does want to come into the farms? And Ireland is different because the government values, the young coming in, they're saying we'll help you get onto a farm, we'll give you tax-free credits for the first five years when you're you're establishing, we'll give you green loans for what you want to do. We want you, oh youth of Ireland, to be there supporting our most productive economy. Uh, you know, most productive stuff. And the older people are getting the chance to lease their farms to the younger generation and they're given a tax break as well on the lease and they're thinking, I've always wanted to bring a younger person onto the farm. Yeah,
0: the the whole thing sort of, (laughs) You know the progression of it, yeah.
1: The, the consequences is, is the Irish sector is feeling buoyant, even though they're facing the three big things that we are, which is the the yeah. greenhouse gases, is the water and um and, and labour,
0: because they they're getting labour. They don't have the red tape creep either, now, right? Is it? Now, you
1: know? So hmm. they're being supported in a way that would be possible now. MPI. And the government will say, when we're overseas, we're doing everything we can to talk talk about the great sector. But it doesn't translate here. So on the farm...
0: Can can you rely on them to do that, though, in a way that is beneficial? Because already, I mean, it's an amorphous thing, but they are showing that they don't don't seem to understand, actually.
1: They don't actually seem to understand what's happening on farm. Now, part of this is... And and
0: if you don't understand that... (laughs)
1: then no so fundamentally they there seems to be a belief that new zealand farmers are rich and some of them might be
0: oh so it's a class war
1: some of the consultants are rich and some of the doctors and dentists are rich and some of the you know
0: i think you're right about consultants for sure so
1: yeah, so let's not or some of the media moguls are rich, but but we don't target them in quite the same way. Uh, and so for Well, most they don't of feed us, people either. No, exactly right. So and they're not look caretaking for the environment. Um, in Tiro on a Friday afternoon, the number of cars dropping off the expressway and having to recharge their Teslas <laughs> is yes. it's sort of like a log jam. goodness sakes as they go to the beach or the slopes or whatever but coming back um to how do we support the new zealand farmer to ensure that it's a vibrant industry most farmers that i see are um comfortable but working long hours they aren't rich they're trying to do the best for their families and um, in the same way that any other group of people are doing. And for the younger farmers, the contract milkers, the share milkers, uh, people trying to come into the industry, this dropped to $7 and everything that they're having to deal with in terms of um, new regulations about um, animal, regu- uh, well, calves and uh, antibiotics and whether we can or can't use neonicotinoids this year, all of that, that's um, plant chemical to stop insects eating the plants because we quite want them to be harvestable. All of these sorts of things are creating majors for people thinking this is a this is a valued industry to come in and they are under considerable stress and wondering why they're doing it. They'd have made more money putting their money not into cows or land but into housing. Well, that's dismal because it's not food.
0: And I think, you know, polling has shown that the vast majority of farmers feel like New Zealand is going in the wrong direction, so there's that.
1: Yeah, well, it is for them. It really is. And there are groups that are trying to support them, things, well, all the rural professionals are, are wanting to be able to help. And, but every farm is different and it takes more than a cup of tea So the government's been putting more money into Rural Support Trust, but it takes more than that to actually support our farmers. And part of the pushing back on the regulations, just saying one farm environment plan, and it'll be slightly different for every farm. But if you've got your concept about, and actually Fonterra has already done it. We, um, you know, the big companies, the big processors do it. So we have animal welfare, we have health and safety, we have... Um, human, the human relations, the employment side of things. We have the environment and our hot spots and they are fenced and they're all ticked off. And, yes, there's a new effluent system. And, yes, the um, parlour, because I'm British, the milking parlour is um, beautiful. 40-year side herringbone, automatic cut removers, in the vet, we just keep focused on what matters. People, animals, soil, plant, environment and try to produce good food
0: it's been a really interesting chat Jacqueline thanks for coming on and and sort of putting us you know in in the picture yeah that's what it is in the picture and getting kind of an overview that I certainly didn't have before so thank you for that yeah absolute pleasure okay and um let's see what happens and, and maybe we'll talk again
1: well, fine. We could talk about regenerative agriculture, which I touched on only briefly, because for New Zealand, they're going backwards. And one of the farms that went regenerative from being quite green yeah. um, crashed and had to, was back applying normal fertiliser in two years, having had animals die on the slopes because they couldn't feed them. Now, I need to add hastily, that was a COVID year and they couldn't get them to the works, but they were skinny animals and they keeled over. That's not animal welfare.
0: Okay, well, we can come back and revisit that now that we've sort of got the the bigger picture. Dr. Jacqueline Roweth, thank you for coming on RCR. It's great. Thank you very much for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.